Hello and welcome back to Equity, a podcast about the business of startups where we unpack the numbers and nuance behind the headlines. I'm Natasha Mascarenas, and this is our Wednesday show where we niche down into a single topic, ask a question, and unpack the rest. This week, we're asking what makes a platform economically viable for creators? And to chat through that very broad but intense question, we have Alex Wilhelm. Alex, how are you? I'm good. I'm good because I'm a creator and I'm going to learn if I have a future career. This is a very important topic to me, my bank account, and my 401k. So thank you for having me on. Also here to talk us through this question is Amanda Silverling. I think you are the most online person at TC. So I am honored to have you (laughs) with us. (laughs) Thank you for being here. And I'm so excited to hear what you have to tell us. Yeah, thank you. I am the most online person at TC because I unfortunately can explain to you the ins and outs of the West Elm Caleb saga. Oh my God, don't get me started on that. Alex is questioning it and we will talk about it offline because it's just too deep to get into during a show intro. Amanda, you're crazy for saying that. Yeah. (laughs) Rarely, I'm actually fully read up on that one. So No way. Yes, I may not know who Charlie is from TikTok, but I can tell you all about Caleb. Um, Anyways. (laughs) Unfortunately, we're going to talk about something um, a lot more serious, which is the creator economy and how it's evolved over time. We're going to start today's show with the Spotify and Joe Rogan saga and then use that as a way to kind of segue into our broader question. We're going to get into creator monetization structures, the incentives of the Friendly Neighborhood Creator Fund. And finally, what should the ideal platform keep in mind when building for creators in the future? But Alex, maybe you can start off with the news. I mean, Joni Mitchell's music was pulled off of Spotify. Why? Yeah. So essentially, Spotify decided that being a commodity music service wasn't going to be the best business in the world down the road if it wanted to make lots of money. So they had to find a way to raise prices. And so one way to do that is to have exclusives. Can't really do that in the music world because they don't own the label. So what do you do? Well, you get podcasts. And one big podcast is the Joe Rogan Experience, or JRE, or really just what we call Joe Rogan. It's kind of him talking to some people. It's a, it's a long-form show, which is a polite way of saying unedited, and uh, <laughs> it goes on and on and on. And the people say many, many things on this show. And after Spotify bought it, Joe Rogan uh, kept doing his thing. And sometimes he has guests on, or himself, that says things that are a bit, uh, a bit out there, especially involving things like COVID-19. Now, Given that we are in a pandemic, some people aren't happy with this, including Neil Young and Joni Mitchell, who are artists your parents probably conceived you to 400 years ago. And I'm going to rephrase that because it came out really weird and not the <laughs> way I wanted it to. Don't rephrase it. Keep it. Keep it okay. on the show. Please keep it in the show. All right. Okay. Uh, Neil Young and Joni Mitchell, two people that were doing music back when cars were still pulled by horses, decided to remove their music from the platform uh, in protest of this. And essentially, Spotify realized it was losing its access to all the music, which undercuts core value proposition. So it had to fix it. So Joe Rogan kind of fixed it. So as you said, like Joe Rogan's show is a huge deal. I think our story says that it's the most popular podcast in the world with multiple episodes each week, 11 million listeners per episode. And Amanda, on the flip side, we see Neil Young, who left the platform, also losing a big chunk of his streaming income. I mean, 60%. Is that big? Is that little? What was your read on his choice to depart Spotify. I'm surprised at how much impact it has had because like most TechCrunch reporters, I'm quite jaded and I wasn't sure if it was actually going to make a difference, but it feels like a lot of people are really taking seriously thinking about what the implications are of Spotify promoting essentially misinformation about COVID. We need to think about the fact that Spotify is making editorial decisions here when they spend $100 million on content that 
is exclusive to their app. But something that is relevant here is that artists don't make a lot of money through streaming. It's the big lie of the music industry that is unfortunately not that big of a secret, but there's actually a collective of musicians that are trying to campaign to get Spotify to pay out one cent per stream, which that sounds so little, but right now people estimate that Spotify only pays out a fraction of a cent. We don't know the exact payout, but it's like, I guess if you're as big as Neil Young, you're probably making a lot of money. But like, it's tough on the heavy metal scene to pick one because their, their monetization has changed a lot. And like this idea of evolution of business models in, in the world of music is pretty apropos to the conversation about creators in general, because we've seen similar evolutions just, you know, at a more rapid pace. So the transition from CDs to streaming took a long time via iTunes kind of there in the middle. But it does seem to be that, you know, in the world of creation online, things are now moving faster, Natasha. I mean, TikTok took off and has now become Boomerville pretty quickly. And YouTube is still quite the big thing, even though it's kind of, I think, lost some of its cultural cachet. But yeah, I mean, things change and the money's changed with it. As we've all talked about now, like this whole news that's been playing out over the past week has made like the general public think a lot about how people monetize and actually how vulnerable monetization can be. Amanda, I think before I was feeling a little bad for Neil Young, but you're right. Like, I guess I didn't think that he doesn't need streaming income as much as a indie um, music producer. So it's mm-hmm. it's less about neil young losing money and more about okay let's ask the more interesting question which is like for creators who are watching this happen they're probably thinking about how much power should they let the platform they host have and they probably shouldn't put all their eggs in one basket when i talk to creators and write about the creator economy one of the most important lessons that i've heard from longtime creators is that platforms aren't your friend i wrote an article for tc plus that was about how there are more creator economy startups than creators, which is an exaggeration, but there are so many creator economy startups. And I wanted to look into whether these startups truly serve creators' best interests. And in that article, Amanda McLaughlin, who is the CEO of Multitude Productions, an independent podcasting studio, she pointed out that you can't look at a platform like it's your friend. It's like, yeah, maybe you scroll TikTok when you wake up first thing in the morning, but they're not your friend. They are a company that needs to be paying you for the value that you bring to the platform. Yeah, they're not your friend if you're a consumer because they're going to go ahead and just uh, kind of feed you a never-ending slurry of stuff that you like to keep you engaged. But they're also not your friend if you are a creator yourself because there is an inherent kind of tension in the economics there. Essentially, they have an incentive to make as much money as they can while paying out as little as possible. And you, the creator, have the uh, opportunity to say yes or no to that. But you don't have a lot of negotiating leverage. You can't really form a union. I mean, the artist example of Spotify is quite good, but I'm not familiar with there being a similar group on YouTube demanding a higher cut of revenues or whatever. And so I think the question is, you know, can you really make a platform that works as a corporate entity and perhaps is even venture backable for our little world and also pays out a fair amount of money to creators? And Spotify, going back to the original example, seems to kind of be a no for most folks. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I want to talk about incentives here because I think that's where all of this comes and clashes because everything from a creator fund to a exclusive deal to a percent cut like we see on Substack gets money into a creator's pocket, but they all offer different sorts of pros and cons. And so the place that I would love to start would be 
let's talk about creator funds. Those things sound like a easy little bonus structure for creators, even smaller ones who don't need to have millions of followers on a TikTok, for example, to get paid out. So when you look at a platform like TikTok, which is arguably the platform that all the platforms want to be, like even like Twitter and Reddit and Spotify and Netflix are trying to do short form video. Literally everyone's trying to be TikTok. And TikTok is helping creators monetize through a creator fund, which means that there is a static pool of money of hundreds of millions of dollars. And if you have a list of criteria, like to get into the TikTok creator program, if you are above the age of 18 and in the United States, you need to have 10,000 followers and 100,000 views on videos within the month before you apply. But the thing is, as TikTok is growing, which is arguably because of the creators on TikTok, you could say, the pot does not grow. So people have been talking about this online because Hank Green, who is a YouTuber who co-founded VidCon, now does TikTok because who doesn't? He said that he used to be making five cents per thousand views, but in mm -hmm. recent months he's been making closer to two cents per thousand views. And his point was essentially that it's not fair to creators that as TikTok grows, their creator payouts are not growing. And he compared it to a platform like YouTube where you get 55% of ad revenue share if you are in the YouTube partner program. There's pros and cons to both setups because I think ads are a bit more intrusive on YouTube mm -hmm. and... You know, our Web3 loving friends love to talk about ad-supported social media and those issues. And on TikTok, there are ads, but it's a little less, like, in your face than YouTube. Sure. The idea that the pool is static seems like the biggest issue here. It's not the existence of a fund, necessarily, but the fact that the fund isn't scaling as the platform scales I mean, Alex, that seems pretty inevitable to be getting some pushback. Yeah. I mean, if you were a small platform and you had some creators and you were looking to kind of find a way to engender more enthusiasm for your platform before it had the scale and network effects that drives a, co a company like TikTok forward and makes it the battle of the ball to Amanda's point about it being the place that everyone wants to be, I can see putting together a small fund, drop 50 million in there, get people incentivized to create. But here's the thing, if it works and it does drive a lot more activity and a lot more content created... You either need to create an open-ended fund or, akin to YouTube, have some sort of revenue split to keep the economics reasonable. Just, I'm never going to be able to get past the tension that platforms fundamentally want as much content, as good a content as possible for as little money as possible, and creators want to be fairly compensated for their work. You're never going to solve the platform creator tension unless creators actually own the platform. And given how capitalism works, that seems unlikely. Well said. And I think that because, you know, you have Instagram Reels and Snapchat Spotlight and YouTube Shorts, everybody is copying TikTok. So because TikTok made a creator fund, then YouTube and Snapchat and Meta all decide we're going to make creator funds now too. But their creator funds pay more than TikTok. But people still use TikTok because it's cooler. And it's like this idea that anyone can become famous on TikTok, but not anyone can become famous on Instagram or discovered as easily or pop up as easily on those platforms makes it kind of even sadder in a way, because I think mm -hmm. TikTok does attract the smaller creator. So it, it kind of does come back to our question of like, is this economically viable for the smaller creators or is it just 
does it work as like a tip jar for bigger creators? And that's kind of like the biggest impact a TikTok creator fund is having. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's about ad load though, isn't it? Like, you know, how heavy is the ad load on TikTok? I, I don't really recall ever seeing uh, an ad on TikTok, frankly. But if I don't well, have you've my- You've only seen 30 TikToks total. <laughs> I mean, I've had, I've had the app. My friend does TikToks. <laughs> I have seen her TikToks and then I've scrolled and I've seen a few more. But you know, if I go on YouTube, right? Like there's, there's two pre-rolls, two mid-rolls, and then they it like it. steals your wallet by the end. Like it's a, it's a pretty heavy ad experience, which is why everyone uses ad block. Good job, YouTube. Um, <laughs> but the point is like, they probably have a higher level of monetization per minute watched is my guess, which means that probably they can afford to pay out a higher split than TikTok can. Lower ad load, lower effectively revenue per play, shorter plays as well, so there's dynamics there. But like, I, I wonder if essentially there has to be a greater monetization density to allow for a non-fund and more kind of chronic ability to pay out creators for what they build. Yeah, I, that's a good way to put it. Like I, in, in a way, now that we're talking through it, I'm like, is there going to be a domino effect where it just gets worse for creators over time on all platforms if they want to avoid doing the ad supported business model? Or is someone going to like kind of raise the bar? That feels like too difficult for any of us to answer, but that's just something that's on my mind now because I feel, I guess like if we're going back to Joe Rogan, like I see why exclusive makes a lot of sense now. You get a hundred million and you don't worry about other platforms kind of doing the right thing. Well, doing the, well, <laughs> doing the right things is doing a lot of work there and I don't disagree with you, but, but I'll just say that like it's a hundred million dollars, which is a lot of money. And yet it's kind of not. If you're doing 11 million downloads a week, right? Let's call it 500 million a year. The, the math looks pretty okay, pretty quick. It's only a couple of years to make that kind of cheap. So I think it just goes to show that the, the creator economy probably is going to be roughly akin to the normal economy, the broader economy, in that the, the wealth and power and money and rewards do concentrate at the top. The thing that I'd be most curious about and most excited about would be, is there a way to make a creator economy, ecosystem, platform, whatever, in which it was more economically viable for more people? And I think there's been no example of that really working yet because without scale, there's no real impact. And without no impact, there's not enough money. So I just, I, I wonder if we're trying to square a circle here and that we're yeah. asking almost too much of these companies because companies like money and creators don't have any. That and there's companies out there. I mean, my friend's building a company right now called Palette. It's like a pipe for creators. You can bet on a creator's eventual revenue. And so I'm like, there's two very different conversations happening right now in the creator economy. You know what I would like to do is bundle up all those bets on future creative earnings into like, you know, kind of a collectivized asset, if you will. And then we could slice it up by tranche based on which creators and the highest quality ones at the top. And then we can make more bets on that synthetic bets oh on derivatives of the creator content based on pipes model. And then what we can do is destroy the economy with TikTok. And that's the show, proof. I think. <laughs> yeah, it's like an, instead of investing in like, here's an index fund of environmentally friendly companies. It's like, here's the index fund of food TikTok. Oh my I don't god. know if that's how index It's almost See, how index, why... it's close enough. <laughs> Guys, oh my god, that just blew my mind. An index fund of food TikTok would do so well. I would invest in food TikTokers, but I don't think I ethically can do that as a journalist. <laughs> So this, this brings up kind of a tech wrench question though, because we are asking kind of, you know, not just what's wrong with creator funds that are static, but also really more like, is there a better way to go about this? And, you know, I was just thinking about tech wrench. Like Natasha was talking earlier about how there's a desire to kind of feed the beast, if you will, which is, which for us is just writing a lot of stuff that's like kind of short, but we don't like to do that. We like to write longer stuff. And so we've essentially split our business model in half as, as an organization and said, cool, we're going to do news 
which we're going to put out on the main side. You know, Google will fire traffic at us. We got socials, blah, everyone can come read it. And we make lots of money off of ads. But then we also were like, for the longer form stuff, we're just going to have to charge for it. And so I, I think e even we here at TC are, are essentially dealing with a related, if slightly distinct set of, uh, of issues that relate to content creation and monetization. Because if that doesn't happen, um, I don't get paid. And if I don't get paid, I can't buy donuts. And if I can't buy donuts, I'm going to be sad. So I think we're yeah. still going through the same kind of molting process. I kind of like doing both short news posts and longer features because if you only write longer features, your brain explodes and you need something to like kind of settle the brain. But this relates to social media creators because work-life balance is really tricky for creators because there's this lack of separation between your real life and your social media life. And I think this does come into how creators make money because it feels like Alex can't quit his job and make his intro to Heavy Metal 101 class without having a Heavy Metal audience first. Right. So Which I'd laugh, generally, <laughs> So generally to get to the point of being able to be a full-time creator, there is a period of time where you are likely working two jobs, one of which being like your normal job and the other of which being like you go home and you record all of your brand deals with whatever underwear company is giving you a brand deal. Yeah, definitely. Like even though it's kind of become harder to be a creator that can be full time, we've seen a broader definition of creator. It used to be like PewDiePie. And now mm -hmm. I was talking to Wes about this and she was like, you can be a product manager and you can be a creator. Literally on her company. Yeah, there's the Excel person, the Excel, yeah, the Excel exactly. fluencer. Yes. Exactly. And I think it's like, yes, there are gatekeepers and, and they will always exist. But I, I do like the idea that the definition of creator is broader. From a startup angle, I guess that means that you have a little bit of wiggle room on how you can support these people. The same way you would help like a 10 million audience influencer make money is going to look wildly different from a product manager with 30,000 followers on Twitter. And I hope we see some sort of like, I don't know, creativity happening there because I don't see too much creativity beyond crypto on that front. Are we just saying freelancer in a new way? Honestly, yeah. Because it sounds like creator is just freelancer. Like all the issues we're talking about, burnout, lack of work-life separation, the need to take on multiple gigs at a time to make things work or multiple platforms if you're a creator. This just sounds like the, 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 the hellhole that is freelancing, which some journalists make work. Shout out them. I would fail. Amanda made it work, right? Amanda made it work. I'm arguably still making it work. <laughs> no, I mean, I think like as a writer, making it work as a freelancer is difficult because you're like, let me build my hashtag personal brand. But it's just like me shit posting on Twitter. But then when I was a full time freelancer, not just at TechCrunch, I was writing podcast scripts. I was ghost writing quizzes about the band The Police. And I don't even like that band. I think that they're just white dudes doing reggae and that we don't need more of that. That's my hot take. <laughs> the, po the police are a mediocre band is my wow. hot take. But wow. My childhood friend would pick a fight over that one. But uh, I'm, I'm going yeah. to the truth -o meter. Yep, 10 out of 10. Nailed it. <laughs> but it's like, I think it's sort of the same thing where as a freelance writer, it's not like all I was doing was writing like the hard hitting journalism about Neon cat that I wanted to write. But I think it's the same thing with creators where it's like, 
Maybe you are a vegan food YouTuber, but you're not just making recipes and sharing them. You're also doing, like, sponsored content for a seaweed snack company that I just invented. (laughs) Right, right. Exactly. Like, you can't just be one definition in your full-time job. I want to end with each of us monologuing for like a minute on what we think would make a creator ecosystem thrive. Like, I feel like we did a great job of explaining how vulnerable creators are and how platforms have so many incentives that they're battling with. But in a perfect world where everyone was aligned, like, what would this look like? Would it look like a platform that helps people hold all their eggs in different baskets and, and, and no fund, but like VC checks? I mean, I, the world's our oyster. And I'll start with Amanda. Feel free to speak from it from the creator angle as well. Like, what is what do you think creators are looking for right now? I think that creators are rightfully skeptical of creator economy startups because, I mean, we all lived through Vine. We know what it's like for a platform to exist and then suddenly not exist. And I think that people are worried that it's like, I get pitches for creator economy startups all the time that are like, We are an all-in-one platform for managing your finances and your mailing list and your subscriptions and whatever. And a question I've started asking these startups when I write about them is like, obviously a lot of startups fail or get acquired or whatever. If that happens, how are you protecting creators? And one company called Fourth Wall said that they would make their platform open source, which like... I thought that was a good answer. Yeah. But if I were a creator, I would be really skeptical of using something that, like, nobody knows what it is. Like, everybody knows what Patreon is, but that also doesn't mean that, like, right now a lot of creators are worried about what if Patreon goes into crypto because Jack Conti, the CEO, has said he's interested in that. And then other creators are like, hell yeah, we love crypto. And, you know, if you've been on Twitter, you know that some people like crypto and some people don't. Above all, I hope that VCs and startups and anyone who works with creators will just remember that, I mean, this might be asking too much, but I think people should just remember that creators are people that are running a business and it is really bad if you put somebody's business in jeopardy for your own financial gain. Go off. So well said. (laughs) Oh, I guess I guess that makes me next, Natasha. Yeah, what's your rebuttal? It's not a rebuttal. It's more like a a sigh is how I feel after this because- you know, when we started banding around this topic, we were just thinking about creator funds and we kind of, you know, added to it to talk more about kind of creator economics, I suppose. And I kind of thought we were going to get somewhere, like, like, like kind of end up with like, oh, maybe this is the direction to go in versus, you know, a static pool of capital or whatever. I don't feel that way now. In fact, listening to this, it feels like no matter what platform, no matter what economic model creators are going to, unless they are on the top probably about three, five percent of people out there in terms of audience reach struggling. And so like maybe the solution to all of this, the answer to it is to go back in time to the medieval era and return (laughs) to the era of patronage in which someone gives me money and I make art and then I don't give it to them. That sounds like the best way to go forward. And I don't have a way to fix it other than apparently more ads on YouTube. Well, you know, that's what Josh Wardle, the creator of Wardle, said to me and Ingrid in our Peace for Tech Crunch that he would love to have a patron. And as of yesterday, I guess that patron is the New York Times. Jesus yes. Christ, how do we forget? How do we not mention that until now? That is such a good it's, call. It's, it's because it's all Twitter has been talking about. And like, That's to be true. clear, I am aware of the platform, Patreon. Like, I get it. I know it exists. <laughs> but I'm not talking about $3 per month from eight people who like your blogs. I want somebody to give me a pile of money to go forth and do speculative work. But that's just not going to happen. And I just... 
Like, bring back the monarchy. Bring back the landed gentry. Hire me. <laughs> that took a turn. Some VCs are starting to do that, though. Like, Sam Lesson from Slow Ventures invested in a creator, Marina Moglico. But then he literally had to say something like, don't worry, this isn't predatory. And I feel like when you have to say, don't worry, this isn't predatory, it's like really scary because people were like, okay, cool, you're giving this person like a million dollars, but like, what are the terms of it? Because it was like a 30 year deal. Yeah. Which sounds like indentured servitude, if you ask me. No, I think I think literally what he said was, don't worry, it's not indentured servitude. So by patronage, what I mean is someone gives me money, no strings attached. The Sam yeah. Lesson model is somehow worse than the other models. I don't know how he managed to take a fucked up I don't want to bring up, up Sam market. Lesson at this moment, simply because it will bring up too much debate. I don't I don't know the drama. I just oh know that Did you guys know that Calendly links are actually passive aggressive? <laughs> I want to make my point on what I think makes a creator ecosystem thrive. It's like a very boring take. But the take is these platforms just need to have more transparency on how much a creator can actually make on their platform. I don't like that a lot of the marketing and headlines even that we see are platforms helping anyone become a creator or helping anyone kind of start and monetize in the passion economy. Happily, I've seen the passion economy disappear from discourse a little bit because we've gotten more realistic on how much of it is passion and how much of it is like grueling, hard, demoralizing work. But I would just love there to be more ways for creators to like visualize their income and not just like them knowing that they need to spread their income across different verticals and different platforms. because I think they know that but more like who is like your career manager right now and how realistic is it that you're actually going to get rich doing TikTok? Should you just start a newsletter instead? Like, I think those sorts of conversations are interesting. And if, I don't know, if a company could build something that helps them do that, that would be beautiful. Oh, I hate the phrase passion economy because I do think this is something that a lot of creators deal with where it's like, yeah, being a full-time TikToker seems like a dream job, but at the same time, there's so much pressure of, constantly churning out content and dealing with what happens if suddenly your followers don't like you anymore and then you lose your income stream and then like how do you lease an apartment when your income is from like a bunch of random 1099s from random startups that's the engine that fuels the creator economy the little engine that could (laughs) thank you amanda (laughs) for joining us on equity drop the name of your podcast and your twitter handle my podcast is called wow if true the podcast of your wildest memes we talk about what's going viral and why i'm a fancy tech journalist my co-host is a lawyer and that makes us seem like we have expertise but really we both just know way too much about fandom (laughs) and my twitter is at a where i tweet at alex about hades the video game Perfect. True. And, and at Alex is literally at Alex, which is I'm jealous the bane of my like, existence. <laughs> I was like 10 when Twitter was invented. I wasn't there to get at Amanda and I regret it every day. You're not banned from the show for calling me old. <laughs> and that is a wrap. You can catch the rest of the team at Equity Pod. We will see all of you on Friday. And let's treat creators better, everyone. <laughs> I mean, I mean, why you gotta do me like that? 